0: the most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snyder. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. Everyone who deals in the fresh food business was relieved this past Monday when the Ford PCs announced they've decided not to move the Ontario Food Terminal from its current location in South Etobicoke. It's the biggest wholesale produce distribution center in the country, the third largest food terminal in North America, employing around 5,000 people. It's also the place where wholesalers and retailers of fresh produce come together in the early hours of the day to buy, sell, and and get the fruit and vegetables to consumers as quickly as possible. The provincial Tories have been reviewing options for the food terminal, which has not been updated for years. Joining Libby's Neimer in studio to discuss the decision, Christine Hogarth, MPP for Etobicoke Lakeshore, and Agriculture Minister Ernie Hardiman.
1: I think, obviously, we started off uh, looking at the future of the food terminal, not the, uh, the property at the food terminal terminal site, but what does the future look like for the food terminal in Ontario for the next 5, 10 or 50 years? Um, we, we came to the conclusion very quickly that um, people are breathing a sigh of relief. But I say I also am breathing a sigh of relief because all the players, all the people that you mentioned were part of the discussion when they heard of that everything was on the table and they wanted to make sure that they were heard. And I can assure you they were heard and obviously it became quite evident very quickly that it is of a great benefit where it is not only um just a, where it is the success of the terminal as you mentioned it's the largest in the country third largest in north america it's uh, it's very important that where it is is one of the reasons that it's such a great success and we heard that from all the players in the game and that's why we're happy to be able to announce today that that's the first uh decision we've made in the review
2: christine hogarth a lot of area residents were involved with this they were quite frankly very worried that uh this land would be sold off to developers and you'd get yet more condos how important was that in the decision
3: well the governments never never did say they were going to sell off the land that was something that unfortunately was a a rumor that uh was unfortunate, really, uh, we, what we want to do is make something better, better for the community and create some jobs. And what I hope is that we're going to create more local jobs so people can live, work and play all in one area. And I think that's important. That's why Etobicoke is such a great place to live. You can, you can live there, you can play there and you can work there. And then you don't have to worry about the commute because everybody knows who has to commute. To, that's kind of a pain every day when you have to spend that hour in the car. And it's very, it's nice when you can bike or walk or even take the
1: subway to work.
2: Are there plans to designate this as a significant employment area?
1: Well, I think it's important to recognize that uh, commitment to keep the food terminal there for the, uh, for the foreseeable future up to 50 years. Obviously, that is an employment area. Um, designated an employment area um, would make sure that it wasn't going to get condos built on it, but it wouldn't make sure that... It was going to be a food terminal either. The announcement today is going to make sure it stays as a food terminal uh, going forward. And that's why I think it's so important.
2: Christine Hogarth, do you think it would be useful in addition to this to designate this as a significant employment zone? Or
3: well, I, th- I think the minister was very clear this morning that the food terminal as it is in this location is going to be protected as the food terminal. This is where the food terminal is going to be. So, uh, you know, when you... Uh, this is where we want to see the food terminal be for the next 50 years. So when you designate something as provincially significant employment lands, it um, doesn't actually save the food terminal. And that's mm. what the school was. And that's what all these people who came up and questioned, they wanted to save those jobs in this community. They wanted to make sure the food terminal remained, the farmers, the, the grocers, the restaurateurs. They wanted to make sure the food terminal was there. So today's announcement actually solves that problem because the food terminal is staying right or it is, in Etobicoke, Lakeshore.
2: Mm-hmm. And uh, how long do you think it will be uh, before we get the further details about this, before the study is completed?
1: Well, we're, we're um, anticipating the... Uh, uh, we have two studies ongoing, and we, we're anticipating in the next two to two and a half months we will get the, both of them in to, to tell us what we should be doing proceeding beyond the fact that it's going to stay... In the Tobago
2: and uh, again, you have no sense of what it will take to update it in terms of cash.
1: No, I, because it is a major. It's going to be a major change for the uh, for the farmers' market. As as I said, there are uh, there are some some of the market is underneath um, a cover, but there's there's vendors out there that that are out in the in the elements with not even a roof over over their product. Uh, present time, so uh, obviously we need somebody to design <laughs> uh, what needs to be built to facilitate the the amount of vendors we have today, and to build for the future. So there's no, I can't make a hypothetical uh, guess at the how how big a building that would require or what type of building it would require. So I think just having everybody on the same page, pushing to get the job done. Let's just measure it up and then. You can't lay the carpet till you've measured the room. Agriculture Minister Ernie Hardeman and
0: Christine Hogarth, MPP for Etobicoke Lakeshore. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick. How do you feel about giving up drinking altogether, or have you done so for years? There's been a medical debate about whether moderate drinking is good, bad, or has no effect on one's health. Now, a new study suggests that people, especially women, who give up alcohol can experience better mental health. Men and women lifetime abstainers of alcohol reported the highest level of mental well-being at the start of the study, and women who drank moderately saw an improvement in their mental well-being after they quit. Libby spoke with Dr. Catherine Parody, Senior Research and Policy Analyst at the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction, as well as Dr. Kevin Shield, independent scientist from CAMH.
4: My initial reaction to this study is that really it adds to an increasing number of recent well-designed studies suggesting real caution in recommending that moderate drinking is good for your health. You know, for about 20 years, we've had this mantra, one drinks a day, keeps the doctor away. That doesn't seem to be the case anymore. At least that's what the the well-designed studies suggest. And as a sociologist, what I find interesting also is all the attention that these new studies are getting.
2: Uh, yeah, and before, I'm going to ask Kevin Shield on that, but I also see that this month there was a study in the journal called Alcoholism Clinical and Experimental Research that suggested that older adults who drink occasionally may live longer than non-drinkers. Dr. Shield.
5: The risk relationship between alcohol consumption and mortality is very complex and right now at lower doses of alcohol consumption. So what this study considered moderate drinking, less than two drinks a day for men and less than one drink a day for women, is very controversial in terms of its health effects. And studies are now coming out debating whether or not those beneficial effects exist. Uh, The reason why older people... Uh, may have a different risk profile than people who are younger is that people who are younger tend to binge drink and therefore at, are at higher risk for outcomes like injuries, whereas people who are older in age tend to not engage in heavy episodic drinking. And so that may explain part of that risk difference. However, with this study, they did control for age and they did say that this effect would be seen among the total population of women. And for men, if you are a sustained former drinker, you also experience positive uh, mental health benefits.
2: Any idea, either of you, about why the effect would be most pronounced for women? Um, no, and even the authors of this study are unclear on that. They're
4: saying themselves that, you know, the reasons for these improvements are still unclear, but, but they are, you know, suggesting that alcohol cessation may reduce stress in the form of family conflicts or work and legal troubles. Um, it, you know, so are women more susceptible to those? Maybe um, the authors are also suggesting that uh, some women may receive the psychological boost from successfully giving up alcohol, um, but they are not uh, specifying why that would not happen with men.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for men, there was a benefit when they were sustained former drinkers as well. So there may be an effect of onset of the effect where women experience an immediate effect, where men, they would have a delayed effect. So they experience it later on.
2: Dr. Shield, how hard is it to quit if you are, in fact,
5: a moderate drinker? So if you're a moderate drinker and you're not exhibiting any of the symptoms of alcohol dependence, it would be fairly easy to cut back and reduce your alcohol consumption. Of course, alcohol itself is very addictive and has positive uh, feedback systems within the body when you consume it. So, it's uh, when you consume alcohol, it's uh, going to feel good and you're going to want to consume more of it. Uh, However, at that level, you should be able to cut back or stop entirely
2: Dr. Paradis, do you have a view
4: on that? In our culture, drinking is, is, we have a timeout representation of drinking in our culture, which means that we drink to mark the difference between weekdays and, and weekends, between uh, work and leisure. We drink to celebrate special occasion. Um, and that culture is really strongly embedded in all of our activities. So even though you wouldn't physically, uh, feel the impact of not drinking, socially it would be difficult to say no to a drink, and you would have to explain yourself. We might need to rethink the whole cultural norm around drinking. Why is it that we have to justify when we don't want to drink? Why is it that when we refer to drinking, we automatically assume that um, it involves alcohol, for example? There are a lot of all cultural um, um, significance and, and, and elements that, that we uh, we have to live it that make it more difficult than we would expect to stop drinking even if we are a moderate drinker.
0: Dr. Catherine Parody, senior research and policy analyst at the Canadian Center on Substance Use and Addiction, and Dr. Kevin Shield, independent scientist from CAMH. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick. The provincial premiers met in Saskatoon this past week, and for the first time in a long time, there's not a single woman among them. Does that matter? Doug Ford is coming off a bruising legislative session in this past week while in Calgary, refused to answer questions about the Dean French patronage scandal, which hit after the cabinet shuffle that was supposed to mark a major reset. And in the midst of all of this, it appears the federal conservatives have all but lost their lead over the liberals in the latest polling, which shows that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is recovering after his own disastrous session. To comment on all of these stories, Libby Snymer was joined by her strategy panel of Kim Wright, Charles Byrd, and John Capobianco.
6: The cabinet shuffle was supposed to be an opportunity for, uh, for him and the government to reset and, and, to, uh, and to rejig some of, the, some of the ministers who have performed well and get them into portfolios where they need some extra help, bring in some younger uh, talent from, uh, from the caucus pool who, uh, who have done well over the course of last year. People like Stephen Lecce, uh, like Jill Dunlop and others who uh, really did perform well and get them into cabinet and get them to really shine and, and communicate the, the government's message a bit more, um, or I should say better, than than it was in the past year, uh, so it's unfortunate that that what happened with Dean French and and some of the appointments has taken them off track. But look, Doug is right though when he says that uh, it, Ontarians want to know what's happening with the economy. They want to know what's happening with education, with healthcare, and they've got a huge ambitious agenda as we saw over the past year uh, that they're going to continue over the course of the next year. And I think that's what he wants to focus on and not on the on the frivolous stuff that um, uh, that um, you know some of the other pundits will uh, will be talking about.
2: Charles Bird is that going to work for him? I mean, he's, it seems like he wasn't aware of these appointments. I'm not sure that's a good look. And (laughs) in the midst of all this, after this reset, we have Lisa McLeod. I I mean, who could even explain that using foul language at a a concert when she's there with her whole staff? I mean, it, it just looks like he doesn't have control of the bus.
7: There, there's no nothing more frustrated than an Ottawa Senators fan these days, so I uh, have some sympathy for Miss <laughs> McLeod. But um, uh, the Dean French situation is is very unusual. The nature of his dismissal and the brazen nature in which he went about making patronage appointments of of a number of people, not all, but a number of individuals who were clearly unqualified for their positions, is 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 really quite astonishing. One of the more interesting aspects of that is that. You know, Premier Ford's style of governance is, is. Unusual, and uh, he clearly values people that he's known for a long time, that he's comfortable with, and who in turn are comfortable with with his unorthodox style of governing. So uh, Jamie Wallace, uh, former Toronto Sun executive, is acting chief of staff now. It'll be interesting whether I'll be interested to see whether he gets the nod for the long term, or whether the premier opts for someone who's sort of part of his long term inner circle.
8: Kim, so this is rapidly became the Dean French government and not the Doug Ford government. He became a distraction. He became the person who was setting the legislative agenda, who was theoretically vetting all of his friends and Rolodex into different patronage appointments. Some of those appointments were valid appointments, and and those should be uh, taken and continued on. Uh, But he continued to put the premier in an untenable situation to the point that the premier's polling numbers dropped like a stone, and he got booed in front of a chorus of people at the Raptors game. You're you're blaming Dean, Dean French for that? I'm saying there's an entirety of how they manage their legislative agenda or chose not to. And the premier needs to take responsibility for being a sort of very hands-off managerial style and leaving it so much to to Dean. Those patronage appointments, there were hundreds of them. Uh, people had been talking about them around Queen's Park. The premier decided to continue to take a but it's Dean, he's got this, he's my friend, he he understands what I need to to get through this government. The challenge was that it didn't. Everything we saw, whether it was the autism file, whether it was the way they ramroded through uh, municipal change in the city of Toronto, everything that was scores to settle uh, either should have been better vetted through a, a chief of staff uh, who understood legislative process and governing uh, in an intergovernmental relation style. But they chose to be controversial right out of the gate. They chose to do that. The premier thought he was going to recalibrate when they shifted their enti- practically their entire uh, cabinet, including their finance minister, after a year. They thought they were going to get a better sense of this. And then the patronage stuff started spilling out into the public. The premiers got booed. The one thing that the Ford family does not like and has never liked has been when when these situations become very public and they're and for a populist commu, for a populist government they became very unpopular. So the premier has to step in and say, "Look, enough is enough. Let's actually govern. Let's do this right." The, the Lisa McLeod, uh, you know. Uh, I don't even know what to call outburst. that outburst let's, let's call oh. it an outburst I, I, I guess I'm trying to be more parliamentary mm. than the the minister was at the concert and well I appreciate Sun's fans and that she takes on the minister hockey mom portfolio she was there in her official capacity and, uh, and I think everyone needs to take a deep breath over the summer and recalibrate what they're doing.
0: Kim Wright, Charles Bird, and John Capobianco, Libby's strategy panel this past Tuesday. You're listening to Zoomer Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick. A Midtown Toronto Seniors residence is the latest victim of the city's real estate boom. About 150 residents at Davenhill Senior Living, a not for profit assisted living home in Rosedale, just found out the building's been sold, so they need to get out and find new homes by the end of the year. The building was sold to a numbered company owned by a real estate lawyer linked to developers, which has area residents worried that this will end up as yet another condo. One of the biggest issues is that Davenhill is one of the few lower-cost nonprofit retirement homes in the city, and it'll be exceedingly difficult for the residents to find something that's as affordable. This situation is having a devastating effect on the elderly residents including Ann Washington who joined Libby along with her daughter, Katherine Naismith, and Toronto Councillor Mike Layton, as well as Lisa Levin of Advantage Ontario.
9: Well, I had been in my apartment for almost 40 years, and I quite enjoyed that. However, uh, I had taken a fall and I hadn't had any injuries, but my, my kids were worried that I would fall again and this could be devastating. And they're probably right. Anyway, kept my daughter arranged for me to move in here, and which I did about six or seven
2: weeks ago. That's all. So now you have to find another place? Right. You it, know, it's, it's very upsetting to have to rearrange everything. <laughs> Catherine Naismith, I gather that you are instrumental in helping your mom find this place. Oh, how, yes. How hard was that, and, and what are your issues with this?
4: It was very hard to find the right place for my mother. We, we looked at a number of places. Every time we would go out, you know, it's a big production to, 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 to take mom to one of these places, go through the interview process, fill in application forms. It's very, very stressful. And she's left a rent controlled, secure apartment because she, needed, she knew she needed a little bit more support than she was getting. No one, when you sign onto a, a seniors' living arrangement, you don't expect it to end in two months. If the institution was in trouble, what were you doing not to, signing leases with new tenants? This is, this is a health care
2: issue as, as, as much as it's a housing issue. I'm going to bring in Councillor Mike Layton. So is there anything that can be done about this from your point of view?
10: Well, on the city side, it's not clear that there is anything we can do there. They, they operate under um, the two provincial acts. And so they're not. They're, there's no relationship with the city in that regard. Now we have tried to do. Once an application comes in for some kind of redevelopment, a major uh, a major overhaul of the building, that's when the city can typically be engaged. But so long as they're uh, that that they're following their responsibilities under the uh, the the uh, Residential Tenancies Act and the Long Term uh, Long Term Care Home and Homes Act then there's there's really not a role for the city. Having said that, uh, we have notified our long-term care staff who the city does operate come a handful of uh of, of long-term care facilities, so not really not the same type of facility but really for people that need a high level of care, uh which some of the residents would. Uh, we've notified them and and had them reach out to the operator and to the people that are doing the relocation effort so that they so, so that they know there's an option there. It might not be be the right fit for many of the residents but we want to make sure we're offering what we can now on the other side is we should be doing more like you know we don't want to be putting people through this when we have people living in uh, single room occupancy rooming houses we have improved our policies at the city to ensure that if a developer comes in and tries to replace uh, a single room occupancy with some with some high-end expensive luxury uh, condominium that they have to replace those units they have to replace those low-income unit.
2: I'd like to bring in Lisa Levin, the CEO of Advantage Ontario. There's a real gap in our system in Ontario
9: in terms of supporting seniors because you either have to go into a long-term care home, which is typically government-subsidized and fairly institutional, or you stay at home with home care and there's often not enough, or you go into retirement housing, which is what we're talking about here. I believe that Davenhill Hill is a retirement home and most retirement homes are prohibitively expensive for seniors. Rents typically started around 4500 a month for a very small room, whereas Daven Hill was very affordable. The problem is, is that we need to build up more capacity in our system to have more alternatives for seniors who don't, who aren't ready to go into long-term care, but who don't have enough support at home. What exists is something called assisted living or supportive housing. And what that is, is it, people can stay living in their own homes and they have wraparound support with personal support workers, some nursing and other supports. We need to have more of those housing models and the last government didn't provide any new funding for it. This government is talking about it and it's very encouraging because we need to do that. In the case of uh, Miss Washington, she, it sounds like she could have stayed in her rent control apartment if she had more support.
0: Lisa Levin of Advantage, Ontario, Toronto City Councilor Mike Layton, as well as Anne Washington and her daughter, Catherine Naismith. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick Fight Back with Libby's Nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the fight back knockout call of the week comes from Lena in who says there's no reason not to be an organ donor.
9: I am an organ donor. I've never thought to not be. But being from Nova Scotia, I believe they recently changed the law in Nova Scotia to say that it's basically you're... Uh, considered to be like an okay go on uh, donating your organs unless you specifically go and say no I don't want to maybe I'm just naive or something like that but I just don't really see why anybody would say no I don't use them I'm dead bury me with them like I don't I don't see why you need them anymore if they're good to save someone's life let that be like let it happen.
0: That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us between noon and one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, also 96.7 FM downtown. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Bob Komsic. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fightback. The best of Fightback is produced by Jane Brown, Michelle Saunders, Justin Eacock, and Kelly Robotham.